Hi there, Michael here with another episode of the Strategy Report. Before we get into the Japanese Grand Prix, I wanted to remind you that Beemogul Podcasts is still running our listener survey, and we're keen to get your feedback. We're trying to get a better idea of who's listening to the podcast, what you like about it, and what you want to hear more of in the future. There's a prize up for grabs too. Enter your email address at the end of the survey, and you could be one of four lucky winners to receive a pair of Heel Tread Motorsport socks. Not bad for just a couple of minutes' work. We're closing entries on Friday, 18 October, so head over to the website at f1strategyreport.com right away. Follow the link and fill in the survey. We'd love to hear from you, and there could be a great pair of Heel Tread Motorsport socks heading your way. Now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 2019 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Heel Tread Motorsport socks. Go to heeltread.com. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 17, the Japanese Grand Prix. Valtteri Bottas claimed victory at Suzuka, but between his ominous free practice pace and comfortable race win, Ferrari managed a shock front row lockout in typhoon delayed Sunday morning qualifying. But as only Ferrari can do, it lost the initiative almost immediately, and the key intrigue of the race was a battle for second place between Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton. To decipher the Japanese Grand Prix, I'm joined by Phil Horton from Motorsport Monday and Motorsport Week. Phil, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Michael. How are you? I'm wonderful. Well, let's have full disclosure for this podcast. Quite late on a Sunday night, <laughs> we've made it back to my hotel room in Nagoya. And, it, uh, it is oh, very, it's alarmingly close to being Monday morning. It is, and which is shocking considering my flight is quite early on Monday <laughs> morning. But we will persist, we'll soldier on, much indeed like Formula One did despite the typhoon warnings. Well, it didn't soldier on, actually. It cancelled the whole day of its <laughs> proceedings, so maybe actually it didn't. We'll talk a little bit about exactly how Typhoon Hagabus did affect the Grand Prix, noting, of course, that it did have some serious effects for the rest of the Japan、uh, region, of course, rather than just disrupting a Formula One Grand Prix. Fairly insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but hey, it's a Formula One program. Let's start by talking about this circuit, because the Suzuka circuit, historic circuit, people love the Suzuka circuit, one of the few circuits that really get drivers very excited, but. From a strategic point of view, from the point of view of this program, it's a circuit that really tests the entire facet of the car, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you need a car that's got high levels of downforce, not just, not just high levels of downforce, but aerodynamic efficiency, stability under braking, and almost more importantly, a strong balance. If you've got these, the high speed S's, which is much of the first set of the lap, and then the den the corners, if If you've got a car that feels unbalanced, the driver's going to have so little confidence going through there that it's going to make a world of difference. And especially when it's so close, particularly in that midfield bracket between like, you know, fourth and eighth place, two or three tenths of a second could be the difference between eighth on the grid and 15th. Now, setting up this weekend, and we will get to exactly the effects of the typhoon in a moment, but it was very much on the minds of all of Formula One going into this round, not only because of the potential effects, but because, as turned out to be the case, Saturday, involving free practice three and qualifying,、uh, was potentially going to be completely washed out. It was, in the end, preemptively cancelled. So we moved qualifying to Sunday. But that did turn Friday practice into a substantially more interesting event than it ordinarily is. Now, we, of course, on the Strategy Report, report you know, get great value out of, out of practice. Big, said, big practice fans、too. of FP2. I love a good FP2 session. And we did get a very good one, but it was a bit of a hybrid because we had essentially teams. 
predicting that qualifying may not even happen on Sunday, depending on how serious this typhoon was. Treating it also as a bit of a qualifying session, knowing it would be used to sort out the grid. But we did see some long-run simulations as well, some legitimate ones. Painted a picture perhaps a little bit different to what we saw in the race. For one, Ferrari seemed to be absolutely nowhere. Back to, let's say, first half of the season, Ferrari. Well, it was a bizarre session because we had this typhoon hanging over us throughout the first half of the weekend. So we got to Thursday and we knew that the Rugby World Cup matches, two of them, Mm -hmm. uh, I think one in Yokohama, one here in Nagoya, they'd already cancelled them. So we go into Friday thinking, well, what's going to happen? And fairly early on it was decided... Um, early on Friday morning, there will be no Saturday. So there will be no FP3 and there will be no qualifying on Saturday. Oh, and qualifying should be Sunday morning. But at that stage, we're thinking there's so much equipment that's, that's been taken down, so much broadcast equipment, that, and we don't know exactly where the storm's going to hit and how intense it's going to be. Mm. Will the circuit infrastructure be ready? Will, will everything that we need to broadcast a session be ready for 10 a.m. Sunday morning? And ultimately... It was because the typhoon moved a bit further east. You know, you've seen really bad pictures of about 100, 150 kilometres further east on some of the uh, the peninsulas towards Tokyo that did get very badly affected. But ultimately, Suzuka was fairly unaffected apart from a fairly wet day. But that did raise this kind of bizarre jeopardy in FP2 of usually you get kind of a little bit of a warm up in the session then the drivers do their qualifying simulations and then they'll switch to race simulations. But you had some of the top teams doing kind of qualifying runs just in case this was the mm-hmm. grid. Then doing race sims while others are doing qualifying uh, simulations, which caught out. I think it was Renault that got caught out by that because of just when they went on the circuit yeah. to do their hot laps right at the end. And they caught a load of traffic um, of people doing long runs. And I think Ferrari did a couple of hot laps at the end just to kind of yeah. solidify fourth and fifth as it was at that stage but Mm -hmm. it was this weird session of where you're watching it thinking "Mm, this this could either be fp2 or this this could actually be the grid it's kind of it was an intriguing watch not really knowing what it what it all meant it was almost like watching you know in part a sports car race where you had drivers trying to qualify while other drivers were going six seconds a lap slower just doing their long run pace as you said renault one of the teams who got caught out if, I mean, in the end, it wasn't because it was practice, but Ferrari as well. So we ended Friday thinking Ferrari was quite off the pace, which, to be fair, at the time they were because also their long run pace was, I would be willing to say, exceptionally poor considering we've gotten used to in the last couple of rounds. Them being fairly decent, and I say that in the context that we've had a good, a relatively good selection of circuits before Suzuka to try and guess on how effective that Singapore upgrade was. This was a real test, as we've sort of said. This is a really big test. And they looked pretty bad on Friday, but to their credit, did sort some balance issues. And by the time we got to Sunday qualifying, uh, had sort of reversed some of that. I guess that goes back to the idea we've learned from the last couple of years that Ferrari is quite good at learning after practice. Yeah, I mean, we, we it's almost kind of similar to Singapore. I mean, obviously there's different circuit layouts, different circumstances, but it was in Singapore where Ferrari really expected to struggle. And after Friday, it was kind of, you know, oh yeah, they're yeah. third best, they're miles off the pace. And then the drivers are saying, oh no, we've got a lot of pace to find, we can sort the balance out. And you're sat there thinking... Really? Because this feels like a repeat of Spain, a repeat of France, Mm -hmm. um, Hungary, where you need a lot of downforce and consistent downforce. Um, So in in Singapore, we had that situation where you get to Saturday and suddenly they're on pole. And then it's kind of similar here where after Friday, we're really thinking, 
this looks like a Mercedes walkover, both, you know, mm. in terms of one lap pace, they got an advantage and in race pace, they've got fairly sizable advantage. But then, you know, we, we get to qualifying and again, Mercedes are quick. The Ferrari in the ballpark and then suddenly we get to Q3 and the Mercedes drivers on their first laps, I think both of them went, I think, I can't remember which way around it was, but either Bottas or Hamilton, one went six thousandths of a second mm-hmm. slower and the other eight thousandths of a second slower than they did in Q2. So they basically plateaued. Whereas both Ferrari drivers found huge time. And I think between Q2 and Q3, Sebastian Vettel found an entire second. And that's, yep. that's most teams and drivers will find time between Q2 and Q3 as they ramp up the engine modes, as they just push the boundaries a bit more. But to find a whole second at a circuit like Suzuka was... You know, you kind of thought, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I think that's literally what was being said because it was so dramatically unexpected after Friday. Uh, Sebastian Vettel ultimately took pole from Charles Leclerc, a, a lockout, incredible to say, for Ferrari. Yeah. Really speaks to, I think, in the context of Sebastian Vettel as well, the problem that's been fixed with this Ferrari has been so much to do with balance because it's something they sort of fundamentally got wrong with the philosophy at the start of the year. The upgrade in Singapore seems to have rectified it, particularly around adding downforce to the front end of the car. It's done great wonders for Sebastian Vettel in the last couple of races. And I, he's been very happy this weekend. Ultimately, he didn't win the race. Still seemed quite happy at the end of it, despite essentially losing the race through a start of his own mistake-making. But it really speaks, I think, great volumes to the step forward that car has taken, even if the overall package is not a Mercedes beater. He seems to feel very confident that it's moved in the right direction. Yeah, and it's kind of this weird situation where we've got a four-time world champion and for nine races in a row, okay, you could say Austria and Germany were slight anomalies with the reliability problems. For nine races in a row, he was outclassed by Charles Leclerc fairly comprehensively in some sessions you know in belgium he was i think it was seven tenths off pole yeah in singapore he really dropped off and you kind of thought well, what's going wrong he he you've got this great driver but his younger teammate with 30 starts is somehow getting the best out of it is he focusing on one lap pace more than race pace is it a setup thing or is it just the fact that the car doesn't suit vettel and you're right in that the last handful of races he's been much nearer the fight and especially in race trim a lot more confident with what that car can do it's been a big step forward for him and a big step forward for ferrari even if it was a little bit unexpected in suzuka and like we've seen in pretty much all the last couple of races bar russia but the complete race package seems like it was still lacking a bit to mercedes we'll get back to that fight in just a second i want to make perhaps the only mention we're going to make to red bull racing (laughs) i think fair to say middling in all respects in practice they were in the middle of Mercedes and Ferrari, and they were middling in the truest sense of the word and qualifying quite a way off the qualifying pace. Yeah. They expected more here because there's no obvious overriding weakness in that package anymore other than just being generally not quite there, is there? Because the, the Honda engine's in the ballpark now, we can say, and that car yeah. should have a good amount of downforce but just couldn't pull it together yet again, we find ourselves saying. I mean, Red Bull's been one of the biggest disappointments since the summer break because if if you remember, we had um, Austria where Max Verstappen won, you know, the first win for a Honda engine in the hybrid era. And at Silverstone, they were very strong. That was probably uh, Pierre Gasly's strongest race for Red Bull before um, before the axe swung. Yes. Um, then... Germany, where Max Verstappen obviously won, and even in in the dry, they were they were in the in the ballpark. And then Budapest, uh, Max takes pole, his first pole, Honda's first pole position in the hybrid era, and and could have won the race. Um, but since then, they've just they've not been there. Like Belgium and Italy, they did expect to struggle a bit more, especially taking penalties as they took the spec four engine. Yeah. 
But Singapore, they were nowhere. With the car balance, they struggled. Russia, they weren't really anywhere. And again, Japan was almost just summed up where their last few races have gone in that the whole package, they just haven't been fast enough in that they're firmly third best. They're kind of, they're in that fight to start with and then they just fade away. And you think, it's a shame because you really thought a couple of months ago, you know, we were talking about the fact Red Bull had taken two wins and Ferrari had not won a race this year, which was extraordinary. And now we're talking about Ferrari having the fastest car probably since the summer break Mm -hmm. and Red Bull being substantially off the pace. You know, where did, obviously Max Verstappen's been the faster Red Bull driver for much of the year, so we can't say what he would have done if he would have been in the race. Yeah. But Albon finished, let's have a look at the timing sheets, he finished 59 seconds behind. And he had a straightforward race. Okay, Mm -hmm. did get stuck behind the McLaren slightly, but that's losing a second a lap. Mm. And for a, for a team that's got ambitions of winning the race, especially somewhere like Suzuka, where it's, you know, it's Honda's home circuit, huge expectation, huge support, that that's a real letdown. And and that's talking about, that's not to discredit Albon, because he had probably his best drive, or one of his best drives, and yeah. best, best one-lap performances. That's just kind of where the team is right now that's disappointing. To be stuck behind a McLaren, I mean, it is a difficult circuit to, on which to overtake, yeah. but they should be in a different class. The qualifying gap between the front runners and the midfield was enormous here, which really speaks to the, uh, the way that this circuit really tests cars, uh, the fact that that was quite a big gap, and Red yeah. Bull Racing was almost eight-tenths well, for the Red, second off the front. Red Bull, kind of where they are now, they're falling into that gap where... We talk about the big three and the rest, but if you look at the times, you've got Vettel 127 dead, then Leclerc, Bottas 127.2, Hamilton 127.3. Then you've got both the, you know, the Red Bull drivers set identical times in qualifying, 127.851. So you've got the half second gap that they're falling into. And then the next car is Carlos Sainz on the 128.3. So you've got kind of Mercedes, Ferrari, oh, sorry, you should say Ferrari, and then Mercedes, <laughs> quite similar. Then the half second gap. And then another half second gap. So it's it's almost if if we're using Japan as the baseline, it's turning into Mercedes and Ferrari as the front runners, and then Red Bull kind of a lonely third, yeah. and then the rest. Which is it, it's a shame that it seems to have developed in this way since the summer break, and it's there don't really seem to be any answers as to exactly why why this is the case. There's it's not like Red Bull have bought an upgrade package aerodynamically yeah. that hasn't worked, like can happen for some teams. It's just. They just seem to have gone off the boil a little bit. Let's talk more about the race proper, though. Now, qualifying, of course, took place on race day, but it is only qualifying. It's all about single lap pace because there was a big comparison to be drawn between Friday's conditions and Sunday's. And to talk back about the typhoon, the effect on the circuit was fairly pronounced, not only in terms of the direct effects of the typhoon, but what came afterwards. Obviously, a lot of rain was involved, not as much as originally feared when uh, Saturday was effectively cancelled, but still a lot of rain washed all of the rubber off the track. Track was very clean. You probably could have eaten not if you wanted to do. <laughs> but then following the typhoon, of course, you get well, terrific clear weather, quite windy, as Robert Kubica and Kevin Magnussen would attest, but otherwise very clear, very sunny. Fairly warm, uh, but certainly direct sunlight. You really felt that heat. And that meant that the picture based on Friday's long runs was kind of different when we got to Sunday. Degradation was much higher, perhaps a little bit unexpectedly so, because from what should have been a fairly straightforward one-stop, as we've seen in previous races, was no longer the case. Yeah, I mean, as Mario Isola would say, the uh, the, de- <laughs> the degradation was much higher than mm-hmm. we thought. Um, I mean, Suzuka typically has been... If 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall it being a one-stop race for quite a few years because yeah. track position is vital. Overtaking is very difficult. Yeah. yeah. And even though it, it puts high stress through the tyres because of the high-speed corners, Pirelli brings the hardest of its compounds. So usually it's been a one-stop race or the front runners will maybe try and do a, a medium-hard or, or whatever. But because of the storm, the fact that there was so much rain and you didn't have the support series either, so there wasn't even that yes. little bit of rubber laid down anyway. You know, there was nothing before qualifying. So sometimes if, if we're in Europe, you'll have a heavy rain overnight. But you might get Formula 3 or Formula 2 out there or even the Porsches before. And it just lays that bit of bit of rubber down. Whereas here, you know, the, the first lap on Sunday was... Well, the first lap on Sunday <laughs> wasn't even completed by the time um, Robert Kubica yeah. came flying backwards. Yeah. <laughs> Enter stage right. Yeah. You know, um, so it did mean different track conditions com- completely to Friday. Um, so, I mean, the teams went in... Obviously, they have sophisticated systems, but there's still that degree of guesswork and going into the race um we i'm sure you probably thought it was going to be a one-stop race as well we were thinking absolutely likely one stop and then as soon as vettel you get to about lap 12 13 and you see his times drop off he comes in and puts on soft tires again you know at that stage ferrari have completely committed to a two-stop strategy because they've got to run both dry compounds so once vettel's done that Mercedes have to react with Bottas and say, you know, well, he's got to go on a two-stop strategy because as the leader, you kind of protect against the biggest threat. So that that created a slightly interesting dynamic, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit further later on. The degradation was substantially higher than, than most expected, and particularly considering that as we had a genuine qualifying session, rather than at the end of FP2 where we thought maybe there'd be free starting tyres, obviously we had the standard rules applying, where the top 10 had to start on the soft compound. Now, of course, for anyone who watched the race, you will know that Ferrari almost threw away the win almost immediately. Sebastian <laughs> Vettel had a jump start that wasn't a jump start, officially not a jump start. And Charles Leclerc was distracted by the not a jump start and subsequently got a bad start of his own and then hit Max Verstappen uh, and that put him out of contention, put Max Verstappen out of contention, in fact, retired him from the race a little bit later on. Sebastian Vettel survived because there was the risk he would be penalised for his jump start. Again, technically not a jump start. Should look up the regulations, I guess, because... <laughs> when is a jump start not a jump start? Exactly right. That's my uh, spin-off podcast. You can listen to it next after year. After dark. <laughs> yeah, after dark. Uh, it'll start, and you, you'll think it'll start, and it hasn't started. Uh, it became, I, I mean, considering that the original pit stop window was expected to be around half distance as a, a natural one stop, as it has tended to be here, especially considering, as you said, these are the hardest tyres, C1, C2, and C3, which is already a step harder than we brought last year, and that was an easy one stop. Yeah. By the time we got past lap 10, Ferrari was already seeing the degradation was quite high. And they actually, to their credit, were very much on the front foot here, not only in the sense that they started thinking about and committing to a two-stop, but they went straight to a new set of soft compound tyres rather than going for the medium and sort of hedging their bets, I suppose, as Mercedes could be accused of doing, not to the detriment, of course, because Valtteri Bottas still won. But really, considering, of course, he finished second, so we can't say they got anything wrong, relatively clever in the fact that it, it did give them flexibility in the sense that perhaps a safety car, for example, meant they would be best placed to switch to a medium tyre and run to the end. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, in the pure light of day, this was a race that Ferrari threw away. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it becomes a bit of a running joke that feels cruel with the last few races <laughs> when they did actually you know, win three times and, and won well. But it's but on this occasion, you can't say it was a strategic blunder. It was the fact that both drivers made mistakes at the start. As mm-hmm. you said, Sebastian Vettel did a jump start that 
somehow was deemed not a jump start <laughs> and Charles Leclerc was distracted by that jump start, made a poor start himself and then sort of understeered into Max Verstappen. Very so Ferrari. already when you think where they were on the first lap, you know, okay, they're running second and third, but in effect one car was out of the equation because of their needing to pit for, for damage repairs. So when when Sebastian Vettel's second at that stage and from the evidence we've seen on Friday, thinking that the Mercedes is quicker, they're already kind of, you know, it's a massively uphill battle. So mm-hmm. to pit and be proactive was probably the right thing to do because Seb had lost so much time. He stuck with Valtteri for a few laps, kind of hanging in within two seconds, but then started to lose half a second a lap. So by the time they'd come in, he was already six or seven seconds behind. So coming in for softs, it, it does alert your rivals that, oh, we are definitely pitting again. But then you force that aggression. And when you're the race leader, you know the ideal race Valtteri Bottas once would have been an easy cruise a soft medium strategy as few potential hazards as possible so in provoking a two-stop strategy ferrari then at least bring something into the equation just in case there's a safety car just in case mercedes makes an error at the pit stop ultimately it didn't happen but i don't i don't think we can accuse ferrari after the drivers had messed up the first lap I don't think we could say the team actually did anything wrong during the race. You're right. Ferrari can't really be accused of making any mistakes here, particularly given that at that first stint of the race with Leclerc out of the picture, they were really at risk of, of having a pincer move put on them by Mercedes. Yeah. Ameliorated only slightly by the fact that Hamilton fell behind Leclerc, who, of course, had crashed into Verstappen, had a bit of front wing damage, chose not to pit for a couple of laps, and Hamilton couldn't get past him. Overtaking here is quite difficult, and that's part of the reason why Leclerc decided he'd like to try to stay out. Couldn't do it in the end. In fact, the FIA forced him to pit. But it cost him even a couple of seconds. I guess that gave Ferrari a little bit of breathing room to consider that they would be running this strategy. Mercedes' response was to pit Valtteri Bottas on lap 17, one lap later. For a set of medium compound tyres, they were confident they were going to two-stop because they were responding to Sebastian Vettel. And as long as they continued to do that, they would probably have him covered considering that car was the better race package. Where Hamilton fell into this was the interesting point of contention because he stayed out to lap 21. In fact, that was just as his tyres really started to come off the cliff, those, those softs he started on. But it seemed like they were going for a one-stop with Lewis. Yeah, at that stage in the race, you know, as you said, Lewis lost time early on with Leclerc because Leclerc was lapping slightly slow with the damaged front wing. So by the time Leclerc had come into the pits, Lewis is already five seconds behind Valtteri. And at that stage, it's not much, but it's enough that there's that bit of a differential. So already pre-race, we think, the the idea was for a one-stop strategy for Lewis. But in using that first in only maybe four or five laps longer than Valtteri and Seb, already it's like, mm, is this going to work? Because the differential in pace between... Once Valtteri has stopped uh, for fresh mediums and Lewis on old sauce, we're talking like two seconds a lap, Valtteri started reeling him in. So already that kind of highlights how much degradation there was uh, during the race. So when Lewis comes out of the pits, at that stage they're still committed to a one-stop strategy. But then a few laps later, you know, um, engineers come on the radio and say, well, it looks like one-stop's going to be a struggle. We need you to reel in Seb because at that stage they're thinking Valtteri's going to win and our two-stop battle is now with Vettel. So Lewis comes on the radio thinking, oh, what's this about? We screwed this up. So he's got to take more out of his tyres to catch Vettel, which, you know, in fairness, he did. But in making up that 10 seconds to catch Vettel and then trying to pass him at the end, which which was a fruitless task, he's then thinking on the flip side, well, if I'd come in on lap, I think it was lap 21 or, or 22, yep. if he was told at that stage, 
you're going to the end, look after your tyres, then he drives differently. He doesn't, he's not as aggressive on the throttle, he's, you know, he's looking after the rubber. But in being told to push earlier, then later in the race, you get to lap 40 and it's clear that you're going to struggle to do the last 12 or 13 laps, especially when you add in the other factor of potential team orders or upsetting Valtteri. If Valtteri has already been told Lewis has switched to a two-stop strategy, you then kind of can't backtrack and and even then try going back to one stop because you've got the risk of, well, the tyres might drop off. And what do you do about potential team orders of inadvertently kind of screwing Valtteri out of a win? So they tried. Ultimately, as Lewis said in the post-race press conference, maybe if the management, the communication was slightly better, they could have done it. But it it would have been a stretch. And then you, you do raise the risk of favouring one driver over the other almost inadvertently. This response from Mercedes I find really interesting because they've had such a dominant position for so long in this sport and in some respects have have very rarely been tried strategically. Only in the last year or two, really, yeah. where they've had this competition. And yes, a one-stop was a stretch in this race, but on the other hand, and of course the midfield cars all do one lap less and uh, are going less quickly, which means the tyres are less stressed, and that all plays Thank- a part. Thanks to the chequered flag, uh, screw yes. up. Everyone did one lap less. <laughs> even less, even less, fewer, even fewer laps. But... Almost all of the midfield drivers, let's say all of the almost all of the point scoring midfield drivers, and then even some below that, all managed a one stop without too much effort. We did see some time drop off at the very end of the second stint, which inevitably was the longer one for most of them ending on mediums. But it really does bring into focus that Hamilton and and for Bottas, had he not been responding to Leclerc, so this is not necessarily in, uh, to Vettel, I beg your pardon. So this is not necessarily a comment against Bottas. But for Hamilton, who had sort of nothing to win, nothing to lose, let's say, or certainly nothing to lose from third place, a one-stop should have been quite achievable for him to pick up whatever happened in front of him. And it reflects a little bit, as he alluded to and as you did, the communication really hasn't been, particularly lately, so perfect at Mercedes. Yeah, I mean, we obviously had it in Singapore, where Hamilton wanted to do the undercut, and they they missed it by that, that crucial lap or two, and he ends up fourth, when... He could have won that race. Okay, any of the top four or five could have won that race given how slowly they were driving. Russia, they did what they could and you had the virtual safety car situation. But yeah, then here, it is the sort of situation where you think with hindsight, well, could they have done a one-stop? Because when when Hamilton came into the pits, he was, I believe, eight or nine seconds clear of Valtteri. And then Vettel was another eight or nine seconds behind. So you're thinking... For the last 11 laps of the race on older medium tyres, he's got, he'd have to lose over a second a lap to even start being susceptible to Vettel. So if we're assuming we're, we're talking in hypotheticals here, yeah. if we're assuming he stayed out, Mercedes probably would have given an instruction to swap them round, uh, the Mercedes drivers around, as to not be unfair against one of them. So even if you swap them round, you're still talking that Vettel would have had to make up probably 16 or 17 seconds in the space of 11 laps and then overtake on only a few laps fresher tyres. So it it does raise the question of whether Mercedes did make a mistake or whether they just wanted to play it hyper safe in case Hamilton's tyres dropped off to the extent that, that he then couldn't even make another pit stop. But then even then there was such a big gap to Albon and fourth that they, they did almost have nothing to lose. The additional dimension here, and Mercedes would be the first to say, as they often do in fact, that a championship is not won until it's won. They they 
do like to not get ahead of themselves. They're big on yeah. that. It's a modesty thing, considering that they have realistically dominated the sport for so long. You can't seem to be celebrating before it's actually in hand. But this is the first time that I think they've made an active strategy decision to throw away a 1-2 finish. Because as much as it was, it could have been a risk. We put that on the table, right? That Lewis yeah. Hamilton very well may not have made it to the end with a one-stop strategy, regardless of the fact that if we say it was better communicated from the beginning, he would have had a better shot. But there was a point where Mercedes potentially could have defended a 1-2 finish. Of course, that would have meant Hamilton finishing in front of Bottas but instead chose a 1-3. Could have been a 1-2, of course, because they were giving Hamilton a chance to pass Vettel, which he very nearly did, but yeah. couldn't do. But I found that very interesting, considering that they did win the Constructors' Championship this weekend, so they, they nonetheless yeah. won it. So I guess you can say they didn't really throw anything away. But usually they're so intent on getting that 1-2 finish, and on this weekend they really gambled it, not really for any particular reason, I suppose. Yeah, you're Other right. Other than to keep um, Valtteri happy, I guess you say. Not unfairly, it should be said. I mean, I think on the basis of the weekend, you have to look and think, you know, Valtteri was the stronger Mercedes driver. You know, he was quickest in both the Friday practice sessions, edged Lewis in qualifying, and then was faster in the race. So I'm sure he would have been a bit perturbed if suddenly he's yes. on the second step of the podium thinking, <laughs> how has this happened? Mm. Um considering the number of times he seems to finish second in the last two years. But you are correct. It's I can't recall, I'm racking my brains here trying to think if there is an instance of a team, especially at a circuit such as Suzuka, throwing away track position. I can, I can only think Budapest was a bit similar when they, with the strategy of bringing in Lewis again, yeah. with a few laps to go, knowing that he would have to hunt down Max Verstappen to, to win the Grand Prix on much fresher tyres, which he did. But that was at a race where the delta was much, much bigger in terms of the new and old tyres. You know, he was, it was two or three seconds a lap faster at the end and with a, a better uh, straight-line speed differential. Whereas here, the even accounting for the higher tyre degradation, it's still actively relinquishing track position and, and knowing you're going to do it. It's not like they made a mistake and thought mm. they were going to come out second. They knew they were going to come out third. And they knew that Lewis would hunt down that five-second gap when he came out of his second pit stop because he did have fresher tyres. But then you have to pass your rival. And bear in mind, that they've said so many times this year, you know, Lewis said, oh, it's almost freaking impossible to pass mm-hmm. these Ferraris because they've got jet fuel, man. Yeah, and spoke about it in the lead up to this weekend. Yeah. Specifically the Delta to pass at this circuit. Yeah, so the fact is that it was always going to be so difficult. So it is a, it's an interesting decision. And maybe with hindsight, they will look back at it and think, yeah, we should have gambled. But maybe they just wanted to play it safe. And hey, they did win the Constructors' yeah, Championship so in the end. I'm sure all the people with their substantial uh, <laughs> end-of-year bonuses for a six-successive year will not be looking, be looking back at three lost points it. and thinking, oh, what a shame. Hey, an interesting uh, Japanese Grand Prix. A championship was won. A historic, a really, a well, driver-constructor double. Yeah. Yes, we just don't know. Which, well, we don't know which driver is going to win the Let, Let's just say we, we have ideas, yeah, but we shall keep them to ourselves in the interest of neutrality. Yes, absolutely right. Uh, and only four rounds of the season to go. Phil, it was a pleasure to talk about the Japanese Grand Prix with you. Thanks, Michael.
That was Phil Horton from Motorsport Monday and Motorsport Week. The Strategy Report is powered by Heeltread Motorsport Socks. Go to heeltread.com and check out their range of designs inspired by iconic cars. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your socials. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a Beer Mogul podcast, and if you're looking for an alternative take on the Japanese Grand Prix, have a search for Box of Neutrals in your podcast app of choice to hear a discussion about how a race that lasts 53 laps can run for only 52 laps. I've been Michael Laminato. Look me up at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in a couple of weeks' time for a wrap-up of the Mexican Grand Prix.